0: A TRUE AND PRISTINE LOVE we tumbled out of the minibus, a bunch of city women. None of us knew a thing about horses, so we were all agog. Someone had set it up with a friend of a friend, and we'd all agreed in a flash. After all, it was so different from our everyday lives. Having gratefully mopped ourselves with cold towels, and hanging on to our glasses of chilled lemonade, we were guided down to the paddocks. They'd put small seat cushions in the stands for us, which was too considerate, and they held large umbrellas over our heads, which was too funny, since none of us were the magnolia complexion type. The horses came out, and were immediately the focus of attention so unspeakably handsome. Shining coats, plaited or beribboned manes and all that magnificent rippling muscle. Animal magnetism at its absolute peak. We couldn't help ooing and aahing. They tackled the fences and triple jumps with dauntless courage. But they also had the agility and athleticism to swerve and tack around tightly on the convoluted track. It was an awesome display. They leapt effortlessly over the fences and soared over the water jumps with nary a splash. We clapped and cheered and smiled our heads off. Our hosts explained all about bloodlines and sires and dams. These beautiful beasts had authenticated family histories all the way back to the flood. None of us knew our own ancestry that far back, three or four generations at best. But these animals were the sons and daughters of equine nobility. Their parents and grandparents had won more trophies than you could shake a stick at. It was a bit galling to be out ancestried by an animal, I can tell you. Next, they put on a demonstration of dressage. I'm running out of adjectives to describe fantasticness here. We'd seen the raw power and energy of the horses in the show jumping. And now we saw their spinsterish, coquettishness, elegance and almost dance-like grace. It looked like the jockeys were just along for the joyride as the horses knew exactly what to do and performed precisely and easily. Of course, these were different horses from the jumpers. Like us humans, some had a natural bent for this, or that, or for speed, or some other. Watching them dance across the big dirt square with their mincing steps or rhythmic strides was just thrilling. And we sat there like goofs, with big smiles on our faces. It was over all too quickly for us. We could have stayed much longer, admiring those horses. But we were charmingly ushered along to the stables. I was expecting the smell of horse dung and hay and sweat and pitchforks and stuff. Very storybook, I admit. My dear these tables were air-conditioned remember each of these beautiful beasts was worth a king's ransom and many of them had already earned that ransom multiple times over for their lucky owner they were huge huge money spinners and were pampered and cosseted accordingly they were drilled and marshalled on the grounds like any other beast but then they were cooled off and rubbed down and brought into this temperature- and humidity-controlled haven. It looked like Hercules had just diverted the river through it, for it was clean as the proverbial whistle. No piles of horse dung, for sure. It smelt of hay and leather polish. We could see saddles and reins and bridles everywhere. The leather gleamed, and the metal stirrups and bits glistened from regular buffing by a vigorous hand. The air was cool but not cold and some of the horses had their heads poking out of their stalls as inquisitive about us as we were about them. Each horse's name was inscribed above his stall and I was reading them casually while listening to the head groom. He was telling us about the precise mixture of fats, starch, protein and fibre that went into horse feeds. And then there were vitamin and mineral supplements. Who knew it was such a precise science? He reminded us that they were all highly strung professionals, not playthings to be petted and stroked. The horses put in their bit by nervously whiffling their upper lips and snorting and stamping and letting off high-pitched whinnies. I edged away nervously from one particularly insistent one, Bannister's Baby, I remember, for horses always have such exotic names, and stumbled blindly backwards into another horse. I remember the look of horror on the face of the head groom, who was exactly in my sight line. His eyes were not on me, however, but on the horse I had backed skittishly into. It might have been humbling to discover how expendable I was in his worldview, but there was no time for that. His expression changed from horror to fear to amazement. As I belatedly realized, I was being cradled by the horse and then gently nudged upright. I was still struggling to manage myself, but the horse people, had all gone silent and frozen and was staring at the scene with dangling jaws. I didn't know what the heck I'd done. I could feel that moist nose nuzzling the small of my back in a gentle kind of pushing way and so I slowly turned and faced him. Thunder's echoed and hesitantly stroked his smooth aquiline muzzle to say, Thank you. He batted his long, lashed, liquid eyes at me, and I felt like I was drowning. He was an ethereal silver-grey colour, with a black, feathery blaze over his left brow, a black muzzle and black socks low down on his powerful legs, and he was massively muscular. He hadn't been brought out that day, we were told later, firstly because he was a racer, not a jumper or a dressage specialist, but also because he had a notoriously bad temper. They never risked taking him out amongst untutored visitors. But this horse, as dumb beasts sometimes will, had taken it upon himself to prove them false. They were plumb awestruck to see how he took to me. It had been weeks before any of them had been accepted by him. He would snort and stamp and quiver his lips menacingly to show his big dangerous teeth. Never, quoth I. He's just a sweet darling. And to me, amazingly, he was. I can't explain why, but he had decided he loved me. And from such a fantastic fellow, I accepted it gratefully and with both hands. So there was a bit of brouhaha about that with everyone expressing their shock and awe and me basking in the glory of the moment. I'll never forget the magnetic connection I felt with him that very first time the thrill of the whole bizarre encounter, and the tenderness with which Echo had honoured me with his love. It's such a special, special memory that I will always cherish it. After refreshments in the main farmhouse, we trundled back onto the bus to go home, and I secretly hugged that special little joy inside me to bring out and savour again later. So you can imagine how devastated I was to read in the newspaper a few weeks later that Echo had been kidnapped. I devoured every bit of press coverage and I cried for my beautiful horse. The general consensus was that he would never race again since his distinctive style would be a dead giveaway, but that he would probably be put out to stud to sire another line of super winners since his seed was guaranteed to fetch astronomical prices. Everyone laughed at me, moping over Echo. But none of them had felt the connection I'd felt that day, and so they couldn't know my anguish. To think that that magnificent specimen had been taken from those five-star stables to some miserable laboratory-like hovel where he would regularly be milked for his powerful seed and would eke out his days practically a prisoner, never running free again, was like a dagger to my heart. So laugh if you want, I don't care. I grieved for him. Now, fast forward to the next December, when, as a treat, my husband and I were invited to the New Year's races by a remote cousin. We'd never been to the racecourse before, so we dolled up and went, quite excited about the whole event. My hat had been the topic of everybody's interest for weeks. I'd finally given up hope of wearing a simple one, and had given in and got myself a bit of net and feather that cost way too much for something so small. But putting it on made me feel très élégante. So perhaps it was worth the pretty penny I spent after all. We arrived at the racecourse and went everywhere and looked at all the sights and smelled all the smells, the colour and razzmatazz, the horsey odour, energetic buzz in the air and the crowds of stylish people. The knowledgeable cousin took us around to meet a few insiders whom he knew. And in that very equine setting, my mind was naturally filled with memories of echo. More so when I felt gentle nuzzling against my back. I was caught in a crazy vortex of déjà vu by the all-too-familiar nudge, and my mind spun as I turned around. I could hear my heart heartbeat thundering in my ears as I looked at this horse. A beautiful, shiny, black No blaze, no socks. Massive, yes, and with the same liquid eyes. But black, it was some other horse. I stroked his long snout lovingly in memory of my dear sweet echo. I was peremptorily called to account by the cousin and others. Someone had taken umbrage to my stroking the horse. I asked what his name was, but was angrily hustled and bundled out in a flurry without even the courtesy of a reply. He was just a stock animal used in training, I was told. My husband gave me a fierce look along the lines that I should have known better. I should have, yes, but it was so odd. I am not a horse whisperer, so surely I could not expect to... Attract strange horses everywhere in this crazy fashion? What I had experienced with Echo had been quite singular for both of us. And this had felt exactly the same. It was uncanny. I was still being scurried along, the cousin hissing angrily at me about the head groom being furious. It could have been dangerous! He was a bad-tempered animal, and they were all wary of him, but he was a good, solid runner, so they used him in training. The groom would have been in really hot water if the brute had bitten me. But anyone with half an eye should surely have seen that the big black horse was not remotely near biting me. So I became very suspicious. I kept thinking about it all day, but dared not say anything for the moment. The next day, I told my husband everything, over his morning tea and newspapers. We hadn't been married this long for nothing, so with a look of resignation, he agreed to help me. Could it wait a few hours, was all he asked. Later that morning, we looked up the horse farm we had been to, called and asked to speak to somebody about Thunder's echo. We said we had possible information on his current whereabouts. That got us on the direct line with the owner, Tootsweet, and I recognised his voice at once. I introduced myself and reminded him about our lady's visit and my encounter with Echo, and he remembered me right off. I told him what had happened the day before the racecourse. I said I knew the horse was black and not silver-gray, and that there was no blaze. But in my heart, he'd felt just like Echo to me. And my heart told me it was Echo, though I couldn't explain how that was possible. It sounded so lame, and I apologised, but I felt I just had to bring it to him. Well, you know what happened after that. It turned out to be Echo all right. I learned that greys, as they are called, are actually black-skinned horses with mostly white hairs, but also some black hairs, like Echo's Blaze. So dyeing Echo black had made for an easy transformation. The whole shady business was intended to have garnered more money than I can even think of, and I had to beg to be kept out of the limelight. But finally, Echo was brought safely back to his rightful home and reinstated in glory in that splendid stable in a spacious stall with his name emblazoned over the door. He still runs, and I still visit him. Not because he's faster than the wind, or famous, or more handsome than Adonis, but just to talk to him and stroke him and be nuzzled by him. And the inexplicable love we feel for each other is a rare and precious thing. In its own way, it's a very true and pristine love. And that was my first case. And that's how I became a detective. Which is what you asked me and how this whole story got started. And now, you have your answer. Who's the luckiest one of all? My teeth chattered and my flesh quivered incessantly from the wet and cold. I could hear someone scrabbling away inside the house, but not opening the blasted door. Surely they couldn't be so bloody-minded. I drummed another desperate rat-a-tat-tat. I was ready to yell that I knew they were in there. And would they just open the door before I died here? Just as I took a lungful, I could hear someone turning the bolts and locks and I calmed myself down and got ready to be polite and beg for shelter. The door opened a crack and a weathered old face with watery grey eyes peeped through. Yes, says he in a questioning tone as if he thought I might be out selling encyclopaedia. I explained that I'd got lost in the storm and was nearly dead from cold and exhaustion when I saw the lights of this cottage. Incredibly, the cussed old beast started giving me directions to the nearest road. Follow that path down and take the left fork and cross the stream, though it might take a while since the stream may be in full spate. I could safely sit it out under the big tree, no matter how angry the stream became. His dense imperviousness had me in full spate, forget the stream. And I was so angry, I could have told him exactly where he could go himself. In this weather, the old coot was turning me out in my wretched condition to shelter under a tree, under a tree. I almost put my fist through his silly, wrinkled face. But the horror of seeking my path again in the deepening dark and frigid cold took their toll, and I collapsed. The next thing I knew, I was being lugged feet first into the cottage. I had the wit to stay inert, so the idiot man didn't get a chance to say, ''Okay, he's recovered. Turn him out again and point him in the right direction.'' I felt two sets of hands tugging and tumbling me onto a couch. I finally opened my eyes hesitantly, and a little old lady was standing alongside the big brutish ass. Both were evidently exhausted from their efforts, and I felt a bit of a bore. They looked at me with terrified eyes, and the woolly old lady said beseechingly, You won't. Tell anyone, will you? For the life of me, I couldn't guess what the bleeding heck she meant. I must have just gaped at her. The old coot grabbed me by the collar and threatened to do me physical harm if I besmirched her fair name. I promise you, he said that. Besmirch her fair name. Do you think I can make up stuff like that? I said, okay, okay. Just tell me what I was not to tell. By then, she was grabbing his arm, pulling him off me, saying, Let him go, Dan. He looks weak in the head. After the rotten day I'd had, this was ripe. It really was a bit too bloody much. So I pulled up the last reserves of my strength, pushed off the old coot and sat up with the two of them scuttling back as if I were a vicious murderer, and told them I most certainly was not weak in the head, nor was I interested in besmirching anyone's fair name. What I was, was a trekker, mangled by the storm, and seeking shelter. And would they be good enough to provide such shelter, and send me on my way in the morning? There were some moments of stunned silence, with everyone gaping at everyone. And then the woolly old thing collapsed into a chair and held her heaving chest in relief. It took a bit of patient explaining but I finally convinced them that I was genuinely lost, not a spy for whatever malfeasance they were perpetrating. Immediately they started bustling around organizing hot tea and dry clothing and making me take off my wet socks and shoes It was only after dining and clearing up, in which I helped, like a right proper gentleman, since I'd got my moxie back by then, that I popped the question, what about my arrival had panicked them so? The answer's a bit of a shocker, so prepare yourself. It turns out, these two nothing to look at, wrinkled old bags, woolly and coot, were living in sin. So naturally they didn't want news of their shenanigans getting out and besmirching. You get the drift. I did my shame and scandal in the family routine, but I wouldn't have lost any sleep over it, though they were obviously guilty as hell. So I swore myself blind not to tell, which immediately made us co-conspirators and bound us together in an unholy trinity. Coote stationed himself in Papa Bear's big chair. I had the couch, since I was still technically in recovery, and Woolly had Mama Bear's rocking chair. I remarked that they were lucky to be able to spend their twilight years together, and Woolly said, She prayed it would be so, and Coote explained, that poor Wooly had been rather unlucky with romance, so he hoped he was her lucky number seven. You see, explained Wooly, I was married very young, but I hardly spent any time with my sweet Andy and he went off to the war and never came back. It was cruel because I was so young and had hardly been a sweetheart or a wife and already I was a widow. Coot nodded commiseratively. So young, he echoed. Fortunately for her, she found Bert, such a loving man. Protected her, interjected Coot sagaciously, and provided for her so well before he died. Of a wasp sting, didn't even know he was allergic to wasps. They brought him to the hospital, but it was game over for poor Bert. Such a handsome man, very sad indeed. They shook their heads sadly at the untimely passing of Bert. After him was Simon, who took her abroad, and she all the time worrying about bees and wasps. But he brought her back safe enough, and then he goes and gets some sickness. Foreign, they said it was. It was a rainy morning when they buried him and she'd been so worried about the grave filling up with water before Simon went into it. But when the time came to carry him from the church, the sun was shining and it all went off splendidly. It really was a lovely funeral. Those little pink cakes were so good, she could still taste them after all these years. And the mushroom volovoes? Oh, you'd have loved them, she told Coot. He loves mushrooms, she informed me, as if Coot's culinary preferences were a matter of abiding interest to me. Coot whispered to me that Simon's passing had really upset her. Three husbands down in just ten years? He glared viciously at me till I agreed that it was only natural to be dejected. But then she met Roger, piped Wooly cheerfully, and he made her happy again. But as stubborn as a mule he was, and when he had that fall, he just refused to see a doctor, no matter how much she tried. By the time she managed to coax him to the hospital, His leg had turned black. It was no use the doctor scolding her, because Roger always wore socks and trousers, so how was she to know? It was the smell that had tipped her off. She would never forget that smell, not after her war services. Coot Stage whispered, Gangrene? Ew! I almost brought up my dinner. That was the end of the jolly roger. But it seemed Wooly was not a merry widow. She went into a depression. It became obvious to me that Coot was actually furious at them for dying. Didn't they care that they were upsetting Wooly? Not a thought for anyone but themselves, the inconsiderate lot. I found myself nodding too, thoughtless indeed to just up and die without notice quite right. Next in line was Davy. He came into her sad little life like a ray of sunshine, always able to cheer her up. The years she spent with him were happy and filled with laughter. He died in a car crash, rushing home to her one evening and was slammed into by a drunk truck driver. And she, waiting and waiting, with the dinner getting cold and wondering what the matter was. When the police arrived, she just fainted dead away. They had to trundle her off to a convalescent home. She'd gone to stay with her elder sister after that and become a complete recluse for the next 20 years. But after her sister died, she couldn't sustain the seclusion and was forced back into society. That's when Mark met her and charmed her off her feet. Coot jumped into the story himself and told me that Mark ran a bakery and made bread, cakes and cookies. So he slept early and rose before dawn and it had been a strange life for Wooly. Till one morning, there was some electric problem and when Wooly came down to check what the blast-like sound was, Mark was lying there, dead, in front of the ovens. He was actually smoking, Willie added her own bit of lurid detail. Coot had been the policeman on that case, and his heart had melted at this brave lady and the deplorable lot that fate had decreed for her. Their courtship was delayed because Coot didn't think it ethical, while he was still investigating the case. He'd been up for retirement in a year and had bided his time, and as soon as he got his gold watch, he'd got in touch. Woolly had flatly declined because she decided she was a definite danger to husbands. Coote would have none of it. It took persistence and steadfast refusal to take no for an answer. But finally... Uli accepted that she had never been at fault, not once, and she was not to blame herself. They were to be married soon, but had thought to get to know each other better, experimenting with this new living-with-each-other business. I tried to look disapproving, and Coot rushed to assure me there was nothing wrong. Separate bedrooms, he said. But I covered my ears and said there was such a thing as too much information. Wooly said it was good that Providence had sent me, as I could be her chaperone. She blushed prettily as she said this. Six husbands under her belt, and another one ready to step into harness. Wooly toddled off to her handbag and pulled out a small visiting card folder with photographs of all her men. Ominously, there were still many empty slots. She showed me young Andy in his uniform, looking innocent and fresh. Bert was a red-faced, outdoorsy type, a ripe candidate for wasp bites. Simon looked suave and metrosexual, though I doubt either of them knew what that meant. Roger oozed wealth in his double-breasted suit and slicked hair. But his lips had an obstinate setting. Davy looked the life of the party type, with a jaunty smile and crinkled eyes. And Mark, with his buzz cut head, was the archetypal salt of the earth. There was a picture of Coote, too, looking crisp chested and official. And she admitted she was a bit ahead of the starter's gun, but they'd be married soon and he'd be there by right looked so proud you'd think he'd won an Olympic gold Nevertheless, I can tell you I was plenty uneasy that night Who knew how toxic her presence was? I was grateful for the warmth the food and comfort But if I could have I would have fled into the dark and the rain and escaped her baleful influence The only thing that kept me there was that I certainly wasn't a husband candidate. And after all, the sister had apparently survived 20 years in her company, so I might make it through a single night. I watched them go into their separate bedrooms, waving goodnight to me and blowing each other utterly innocent air kisses. What happened on tippy-toe after I snuffed out for the night, I refused to even consider. I watched them grow old together peacefully, and die within weeks of each other many years later. Before you ask, she went first, and he pined away and followed her in short order. Coote believed he was the luckiest man on earth, since he won the queen of his heart and could adore her all her days. And Woolly thought she was the luckiest since she finally found a husband with whom she could live till the end. But I know I was the luckiest, since I made it through that perilous night with death hanging over me by just a thread and endured to celebrate their nuptials, mourn their funerals, and now to memorialize their amazing love story. The wicked devil. Here in Chennai, we call it the Punnapakarada, the girl seeing. Even though this was a very informal one, that is still what it was. Suchitra and Sumitra, their mum and dad, Gita and Raman, receiving Raman's friend from the past, Valli, his wife Meena, and their two sons, the eligible foreign-returned, tall, dark, and handsome Amit and the youngster Shamit. Wali and family were coming over for coffee since they just happened to be in that part of the city. Amit had finished his studies and had returned to Chennai and his parents were dragging them around visiting relatives and suitable friends and temples to give thanks for his dutiful return to run his appa's business. Geeta had been in a flurry all day ensuring things were perfect. The perfect light vade. The aromatic coffee, the shining ever-silver stainless steel Dabra tumbler, the sweetest-smelling flowers for the girl's plaits and her own bun, crisply pressed shirt and veshti for Raman, even new saris for the maid and cook. The living room was immaculate and everything was checked and rechecked multiple times. This was no casual drop-in, no matter how many times she told Sumi and Suchi that. They knew, of course, but they'd been brought up to expect this, and so, however much they protested, they would behave appropriately. Amit and family trooped in on schedule, and polite introductions were made. There was a great reunion-type meeting between Raman and Valli, They'd been college mates and hostel mates in the long ago and if they could now again be closely connected, that would be wonderful. This text was, of course, completely unspoken in the presence of the younger ones. Geeta and Meena also seemed to get off on the right foot. Sumi immediately started up a conversation with Amit. She'd always been the livelier one. Younger only by 11 minutes – but infinitely younger in spirit. Youthful energy bubbled up out of this beautiful flower of a girl, roving magpie eyes, vivacious chattering lips, hands that moved gracefully as she talked. Amit responded to the sunshine of her attention. His back became straighter, his pecs pushed out a fraction more, and his knees spread imperceptibly more, making him look manly and confident. Suchi's gentler, all-seeing eye came to rest on Shamit, who looked bored to tears. With a muffled chuckle, she turned to chat with him, and such was her skill that soon the two were engrossed in a discussion on tennis, was it? Or chemistry, was it now? Trust Suchi to notice that straggly little detail. Coffee and refreshments were brought out and were well appreciated. Suchi blushed sweetly when Amma gave her credit for some of the snacks. It's true, Suchi had made them. And Sumi laughed dismissively when Appa acknowledged her contributions too. The girls exchanged a wordless glance and shared a grin. Amit looked from one to the other. They were both beautiful and clever and graceful. But Sumi would always get the attention. Suchi was too quiet. Though she certainly seemed to have hit it off well with Shamit, which was lucky because Shamit was at that age when girls was practically a bad word in his vocabulary. He maintained they knew nothing interesting and spoke only of clothes and movie stars and he'd been disgusted at being dragged around. So had Amit, for that matter. And he seemed to have lucked out too. Black-eyed, raven-haired, slender-waisted, utterly feminine, so similar in looks and so different in temperament. Best part of the temple-trawling trip so far, no doubt about that. The afternoon ended pleasantly, with Valli and family heading off to yet another temple and Raman and family waving to them from the doorstep. No mention had been made of further meetings. The girls sped off to their room before they could be stopped. Raman and Gita exchanged satisfied glances as they flopped down on the sofa. It had gone well. The families had seemed to mesh well together. So typical of Suchi to reach out to the fully fed-up younger brother, no? If the families were to be united, this was a very good start. Now they must wait to hear from the boy's side. He devoted himself almost exclusively to Sumi, so his choice was fairly evident. The wait was not long. The very next day, even before Raman could open the topic at home, he received a call from Wali. To say that Ame was in favour. But he would like to go out with the girls a few times before giving a final decision. Wali had himself argued that no father of girls would ever permit such a thing. But Meena had assured him that times had changed since when they were young, and perhaps if both girls would come together, Raman and Gita might be agreeable. So, almost shamefacedly, that's what Wali was suggesting with profuse apologies on behalf of his wayward son. But what to do about this modern generation? Going abroad to study means they came back with all these fancy ideas, fully forget their native traditions. Raman could see his friend's embarrassment was genuine and indeed times had changed. And he was now unsure of what his own girls would say in spite of all the indications. He was caught wrong-footed since he'd not yet discussed anything with his family. So he made the appropriate noises and said he'd talk it over with Geeta and the girls and get back as soon as he could. That evening, he brought up the topic at home. He didn't mention Amit's proviso. First, he wanted to hear what they had to say. Sumi admitted that she'd liked what she'd seen of him. Suchi put her head down and grinned but said nothing. Geeta beamed. Then he mentioned the call from Valli and what he'd said. The girls went silent. Geeta was stunned for the moment too. The signs had been so favourable. Such requests were quite common nowadays, she knew that. But yesterday, Sumi and Amit had seemed to get on so well. She was completely unprepared. Suchi spoke up first. This was a good sign, she said. Marriage was a long-term contract. One should be absolutely sure. Anyone could put up a pretense for an hour or two. But meeting regularly would reveal a person's true character. She'd be willing to do her part for Sumi. They'd go out together and so Sumi also would be certain what she was getting into. They should say yes, she said, in her firm, logical Practical way. She held Sumi's hands when she'd finished, and the two girls exchanged some unspoken communication. Something rippled over Sumi's face. She looked at her sister deeply. The room was in a freeze frame. Then suddenly, Sumi smiled brightly and nodded first to her sister and then to her parents. I agree. But only if Suchi is with me all the time. I will not be alone with him even for one minute until he has given his word. The twins hugged. I won't let you down soon, I promise, said Suchi. And Gita and Raman were hugely relieved. Suchi had somehow pulled it off. She was quieter than Sumi most of the time but she was very level-headed and could be quite authoritative, as if those 11 minutes made her truly the elder and wiser one. It was agreed. Raman would inform Wali of the counter proviso Amit started to come home, or the girls would meet him outside, movies, cafes. Sumi and Amit got on well, often agreeing, but just as often arguing. Suchi kept things on a more even keel, sometimes restraining her impetuous sister with a glance or a touch. If coffee had to be brought or something had to be done, it was always Sumi who did it, since she was adamant about not being alone with him even for a minute. Suchi would dress and be ready and waiting first, and Sumi would come down only later, a few minutes after Amit arrived. Once or twice, Gita had scolded her for being late, but she'd said she wanted to look her best. And Gita had smiled indulgently and let it go. Suchi would hold fort, and so she and Amit also became comfortable with each other, bantering good-naturedly. Vali and Meena gently broached the subject with Amit. But he snapped at them and said he hadn't yet decided. This was a matter of his whole future, and they shouldn't rush him. Then he stalked off and banged the door. They were stunned. This was most unlike Amit. He was a very even-tempered fellow and it took a deal to ruffle him. He even barked at Shamit over some trivial thing, though he apologised later, which was even more odd. The air was thick with tension. Geeta's gentle prodding of Sumi was waved off with a casual, ''I'm not ready yet, Amma. I need some more time.'' Suchi was the epitome of patience. She kept her parents at bay with a glance and reminded her sister how charming Amit was. This was difficult for the gentle Suchi and she blushed furiously as she recounted his many attributes. Still, Sumi whined, but I am not sure yet, Such. The parents stood by helplessly. She always seemed bright and charming in his presence, running on light feet to bring this or that. Yet she insisted she was not sure. What surety did she want? They couldn't understand. The men were good friends, but the situation that their children had put them in was such a prickly one, they didn't know how to handle it. So both sides stayed silent. And the three young ones continued going out or staying in together at the twins' house. Sometimes, Gita would come across Amit and Suchi chatting together whilst Sumi had run off on some fool's errand or other. And so, a month and a half passed and both sets of parents were jumpy as cats. Amit was becoming more and more silent and broody and irritable at home and still not giving any answer. And Valli and Meena knew something was badly wrong was happy as a lark and smiling and singing sweetly around the house, but also unwilling to give any answer. Suchi was extremely tight and tense, but still felt she'd be able to convince her sister since she knew that Amit really was a wonderful person. The situation was untenable. They weren't willing to go forward, but they weren't willing to break it off either. Both families were fraught. Finally, Raman gave an ultimatum. This weekend, he must have an answer. She could not go out with him for months and then say no. It would not do. It was not right. Modern generation or anything, he was determined. Sunday evening, he must have an answer. Geeta was mortified. So she was in tears. But Sumi was calm. Okay, Appa. I'll accept your deadline, she said confidently. Come Saturday evening, she was taking forever with her dressing and her hair. It was, after all, a momentous occasion, her last chance to make the big decision. Geeta called her once, and she said she'd be down soon. Then, 10-15 minutes later, Suchi came and called her, looking very flushed and agitated. Come on, Sumi, we've been waiting for ages. How long can I keep chatting with him? It's very awkward. You're looking lovely, now let's go, she scolded, pulling her sister. Yes, my dearest sweet Such, it is indeed very awkward for you. Come, let's go down together, intoned Sumi agreeably. As the two sisters went down hand in hand, Sumi dragging a suddenly leaden-footed Suchi behind her. Amit, ever polite, rose as they entered the room. His eyes flitted between the two beautiful sisters still holding hands, Suchi just a step behind. One was and would ever be a radiant butterfly. But the other had a glow too, though it was a softer and gentler light. They sat, and he sat, opposite each other, like adversaries. No one spoke. Suchi had her eyes down, but her face was flushed. Amit looked uncomfortably from one to the other. Something was evidently on the brink. Only Sumi looked relaxed. So, are you too ready to admit it yet? She asked sweetly, chucking her sister's sharply raised head under her chin. Sumi's smile spread from year to ear as Suchi went red like a tomato and Amit looked as if a dam had burst inside him. Hmm, looks like you finally are. I think you can take it forward from here without me, huh? She dropped a kiss on her still slack-jawed sister's forehead and flounced out of the room clattering noisily. She'd known on day dot when Suchi had held her hands and tried to convince her. But she'd also known that Such would need time to know herself. So she'd made it her job to make the time for her beloved elder sister. They were far more suited to each other. That was as plain to her as a nose on her face. Suchi and Amit were left in the room, reaching out to each other with longing in their eyes and hearts. And shocked that this had happened, and overwhelming thanks to Sumi for knowing even before they had, and a hundred other things, but mostly that it was so deliriously, unbelievably, ecstatically wonderful that this impossible dream had somehow come true. All the absences, the reticence and the habitual lateness suddenly made blinding sense. They heard her merrily shouting as the door shut, Appa, I can give you your answer now. No need to wait till tomorrow evening. They both burst out laughing as they reached hesitantly for each other after weeks of keeping all that burgeoning emotion in check. Sumi really was a wicked devil.